Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. You're listening to Soundside on KUOW. I'm Libby Dankman. Bus boycotts, peaceful sit-ins, and law enforcement violently corralling protesters in the southern U.S. These are indelible images of the struggle for civil rights for black Americans in the 1960s. Around the same time, in the Pacific Northwest, marches, political actions, and arrests also became international news, prompted by leaders of a different struggle, the fight for the right to fish. We said that we were going to demonstrate this right by going out and going fishing. And we have the state of Washington coming in and dragging Indian people off Indian land and throwing them in jail for uh, three or four days. When we went across the river, they started throwing clubs, and uh, so we had to bring in our full force and uh, arrest anyone who had resisted. The Indian people here will, con- you know, they'll be continuing on in the struggle until they do have their undisputed right you know, to fish for a livelihood. It was uh, the Native American version of the civil rights movement. John Echo Hawk is a member of the Pawnee Nation and is the co-founder and executive director of the Native American Rights Fund. We called him up to talk about the 50th anniversary of a monumental federal court ruling that changed the course of tribal law in the United States. It's known as the Bolt Decision. Echo Hawk's organization helped litigate the case along with seven Northwest tribes. Native American people, of course, wanted to get involved in asserting their civil rights, which didn't really focus on the equal rights issue that uh, Black Americans were litigating. Ours were for recognition of our treaty rights and the recognition of our tribal sovereignty. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, Native activists were arrested dozens of times for attempting to fish in locations that were traditionally significant, but not on tribal land. At the time, Washington law enforcement said this was to protect fragile salmon runs from overfishing, even as non-native boats were granted license to catch those same fish downriver. The situation was so broken that finally federal officials decided to step in and sue Washington state, acting as a trustee for native tribes. At the core of their argument were stipulations made in nearly a dozen treaties signed in the 1850s. These are commonly called the Stevens Treaties, named after Washington Territory Governor Isaac Stevens. Those treaties said that the tribes had right to uh, fish in common with the citizens of the state at their usual and accustomed places. On February 12, 1974, Judge George Bolt sided in favor of the tribes, agreeing that the fisheries had to split catches 50-50 between Native and non-Native fishermen, and tribes would have a major role in managing the fisheries going forward. The 50% was a huge change because at that time, the Native fishermen were only catching about 2% of the salmon because of all of the enforcement that had been going on against them by the state of Washington. We were basically saying that that uh, treaty language didn't mean anything other than you had to get a fishing license just like everybody else. To put it mildly, the decision was polarizing. An effigy of Judge Bolt was hung outside of the old Tacoma courthouse and many Washington boats just ignored the ruling. Mason Morissette is an attorney specializing in Indian law who was part of the team arguing the fishing rights case against Washington State. It got so bad that at one point, Judge Bolt basically took over the fishery and said, I'm issuing regulations and I'll enforce them with federal marshals. For a while, we had a federal fishing season 
with federal marshals enforcing the season, and the state was left in the dust. During that time, the state's attorney general, Slade Gordon, appealed the decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld Bolt's ruling. One of the justices asked me if I agreed with Attorney General Gordon on a certain point, and I answered, and this got the one and only laugh, my answer was, I don't really agree with the Attorney General on much of anything. Gordon then tried appealing the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, but they declined to hear it, affirming Bolt's decision to split the fisheries and his use of federal marshals to enforce it. Those appeals ultimately took more than five years, ending in a solid decision for the tribes in 1979. And pretty quickly, lawyers saw the Bolt decision would be a critical precedent for a wider set of Indian law cases in the Northwest and across the country. John Echohawk again. It was uh, a major victory for uh the recognition of treaty rights in this country, and uh, tribes were starting to assert their sovereign rights, their treaty rights uh, in uh, all kinds of issues and areas across the country. And uh, being the, the poorest of the poor, they didn't really have access to attorneys until we came along with the Native American Rights Fund and started providing them with free attorneys. And we had all kinds of sovereignty and self-determination cases based on treaties starting up across the country at that time. That those treaties, they were not just ancient history, they were still the supreme law of the land. Over the course of five decades, the Bolt decision has been leveraged in court to compel the state to fix road culverts and preserve sacred shoreline. It's also part of the basis for the push to remove dams on the Lower Snake River. The impact of the ruling has expanded far beyond fishing to legally empowering tribes to protect natural resources. And to look back at how this decision was made and its far-flung impacts since then, I've got Bob Anderson with me. He's the solicitor of the Department of the Interior, a professor emeritus of law at the University of Washington, and an enrolled member of the Boys Fort Band of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. Mr. Solicitor, thanks for joining Soundside today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So in 1974, Judge George Bolt decided in favor of tribes in these big questions over fishing rights. The judge affirmed the treaty rights of Native tribes to access their usual and accustomed grounds and stations. Here in Washington state, the decision eventually brought an end to what were called the fish wars of the 70s. But the ruling's impact extends far past that single case Could you talk to me a bit about why the Bolt decision was so monumental and why it still reverberates today? Well, you know, Judge Bolt's decision, I was just looking at the decision today, and it runs uh, over 100 pages uh, long in the Federal Reporter, which is very long for a single opinion. And its length is due to the complexity of the topic, the large number of tribes, and the importance and novelty of of the claims that were brought based on the Stevens Treaties that were signed in the 1850s that guaranteed the rights that you mentioned before to, to fish at usual and accustomed stations and also hunting rights on uh, certain federal lands as well, and unoccupied lands of the United States. And so it was preceded by a huge number of uh, uh, individual actions over the years. Those uh, actions involved the exercise of individual treaty rights that were made by individuals such as uh, our uh, very famous Billy Frank from Nisqually, who had read the treaty like many other tribal members and knew that the tribes had reserved the right to fish at usual and accustomed stations and were determined to exercise those rights. Both Oregon and Washington had these fish wars going on at the same time, 
Uh, and in Washington, there were huge uh, numbers of uh, protests, both for and against the exercise of these treaty rights, and also concerted state action to prevent tribal citizens from exercising those rights. And uh, in, one, in my uh, Indian law case book, I've got a picture of Billy Frank uh, being arrested for exercising treaty fishing rights in the mid-1960s. Uh, and Billy Frank, like many others, uh, was arrested and spent considerable time in jail being, after being arrested by state police who refused to recognize the tribe's reserved hunting and fishing rights that were preserved in, in the Stevens Treaties. In 1970, uh, the United States was finally persuaded to bring an action uh, as trustee on behalf of the tribes to protect those treaty rights and to ask the, and ask the court to halt the state from interfering with the exercise of those treaty rights. Many tribes uh, intervened in the case, uh, and the case was assigned to uh, Judge Bolt down in Tacoma, Washington. So these rights were rooted in well-established uh, federal Indian law. There was a case involving the Yakima Nation called United States versus Winans that was decided in 1905, in which the state consistently, with its actions in the 60s and 70s, had refused to recognize uh, Yakima Nation tribal citizen fishing rights and the right to cross private land to get to these usual and accustomed sites. Uh, let private landowners along the Columbia River asserted that the tribe's uh, rights were limited by private property. Uh, the Supreme Court in the United States versus Winans case decided that the treaty right was a property right and that the tribes had a right or an easement to cross private land to get to the rights that had been reserved in those treaties. And so the uh, Winans case was really at the foundation of what became United States versus Washington uh, and ultimately reached the Supreme Court and was affirmed in 1979. Uh, so it was a, a long time coming and uh, concertedly defended against by the states of Washington and Oregon uh, in, a, in another case called United States versus Oregon. Can I ask, Mr. Solicitor, the legal underpinnings of the Bolt decision, they not only allowed the tribes to fish in their accustomed treaty uh, grounds and the places that they traditionally had fished, but today they have also been used to be applied in conservation cases and environmental um, cases. For example, the Bolt decision was invoked to compel Washington state to change the road culverts that were blocking salmon migration statewide. That was a 2013 legal injunction that the state is still in the process of complying with. So when does the Bolt decision turn? We're not just going to use this precedent to talk about the right to fish, but there's also a right that the fish must be protected. Yes, that's correct. And the, the so-called culvert decision from 2013 uh, reaches back uh, also to the Winans case, which said that the treaty uh, included a right to cross private property to get to usual and accustomed fishing grounds. And that case, along with U.S. versus Washington and the, the, the Bolt decision, uh, was relied upon by the tribes and the United States uh, in the culvert litigation in the early 2000s to establish that 
Not only did tribes have a right to fish at their stations or and to cross private land to get there, but also to have fish available. And if the state was taking action by designing faulty culverts or failing to maintain them, uh, that the tribe essentially had an environmental servitude that required the state to take actions to stop interfering with the, the fish ability to get upstream and downstream to ensure that there would be healthy and harvestable runs of salmon for the treaty beneficiaries. So it was a critical case in uh, growing directly out of U.S. v. Washington and U.S. versus Winans to provide this environmental protection. And I'd add a, another important, I'd say equally important aspect of the case was the, the co-management that resulted from uh, U.S. v. Washington. So the Judge Bolt decided tribes had the right to take up to 50% of the harvestable surplus. The state got the rest to allocate as it saw fit. And in order to make that allocation work, there had to be a co-management regime of some sort. And so Judge Bolt uh, recognized that the tribes had the right to manage their own resources. Uh, and there were some court processes involved in getting approved for that at the outset. But now uh, all of the tribes in Washington and Oregon are effectively co-managers with the state fisheries regulation, uh, regulatory bodies, as well as the federal government to the extent that there are federal fisheries and offshore areas in, involved. And so in USB Washington, the tribes and the state and the feds gather every spring at a place called North of Falcon, which is where the meetings take, take place down on the in the southern coast of Washington. And over a, a period of time, technical experts for the tribes, states, and the United States review last year's uh, fishing runs, who got how many fish, uh, and how the fish ought to be allocated in, in the coming season. Uh, and reaching agreement on the broad parameters of the fishery for the coming year uh, is essential for there to be any fishing taking place at all. And so tribes have developed tremendous uh, resources in terms of fisheries biologists, uh, hydrologists, uh, and uh, uh, a whole host of experts that go into the business of fisheries management. I'd say that that's, it's, it's not an exaggeration at all to say that the tribes have more sophisticated fisheries uh, monitoring and management expertise than the states or the United States combined. They're just, there are 22 tribes uh, and they've all got their fisheries staff who are out on the ground in their usual and custom areas. They work through the Northwest Intertribal Fish Commission, which was formed by the tribes to uh, serve as a clearinghouse for the exercise and coordination of management functions by the tribes as they engage with the state uh, and the United States in this uh, uh, really important management endeavor. And that co-management regime is also in existence in Oregon. Uh, it has spread uh, to the Midwest. So in both the U.S. versus Michigan and in some of the hunting cases in freshwater uh, fishing cases in Wisconsin, the uh, courts looked to the Bolt decision to determine that the tribes there uh, had similar off-reservation fishing rights reserved uh, and co-management regimes have been built up over time to provide uh, a similar framework for wise uh, management of fisheries resources. You know, I wanted to just emphasize this fact. What you're saying is that the Bolt decision 
not just affirmed the legal right to access fish and to access the native fishing grounds, but it had affirmed native tribes' roles as guardians and protectors of these natural resources, which seems huge. I mean, and it, as we've been talking about, reverberated throughout the years. When you consider the last 50 years of the Bolt decision and its impact, what do you expect going forward? How will the Bolt decision play into the many numerous uh, cases? You know, we think about the Lower Snake River dams in Washington state. Uh, We think about access for oil and natural gas resources uh, that Native people, for various reasons, might be uh, litigating. What are you expecting the Bolt decision's role to be in these major cases going forward? Well, I think it, what it does is it uh, demonstrates that the tribes have federally protected property rights uh, in their fisheries and also have the, the fishing right to rely upon to influence how uh, state and private and federal landowners develop their resources uh, in ways that might adversely affect the fisheries. And it doesn't have to be used as a club through litigation all the time. More and more, we see uh, extensive cooperation between states and tribal governments uh, and the federal government on all sorts of natural resources matters involving uh, activities that may have an adverse or beneficial effect on fisheries resources. Despite the victory in, in U.S. v. Washington, uh, many of the salmon species are in dire straits listed under the Endangered Species Act in some cases. Uh, and so it's it's all about recovery uh, so that the tribes can continue to exercise these rights. And remember that the states have the right to the 50 percent that the tribes uh, have. Uh, and so there's a common goal that the states and the tribes share. Uh, and because of the Bolt decision, the tribes are co-managers. They've got a federal right. Uh, that supersedes state law that might interfere with the exercise of those rights and also imposes an obligation upon the states uh, and others to be protective of uh, habitat necessary for the treaty-protected resource. So it's a huge case. Uh, It's going to have ongoing impacts in every aspect of fisheries management uh, that are touched by the treaty right. Bob Anderson is solicitor of the Department of Interior and a professor emeritus of law at the University of Washington, also an enrolled member of the Boys Fort Band of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. Thank you, Mr. Solicitor. And you're so steeped in it and so knowledgeable. And we are just really honored to have had uh, your perspective on this. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.